If you will, turn back in your Bibles, whatever form of scripture you have, to Numbers 27 briefly, although we will be making our excursion through many portions of scripture. We are formally at the last observation of our journey with ancient Israel to the promised land. And as you know, Joshua will be the one leading them into their destiny. We are at the 42nd encampment, as I shared with you last week, 42 encampments, clearly elucidated in Numbers chapter 33. And we now want to look at the significance of the transition of leadership from Moses to Joshua. I stated to you last week that Moses must have been mightily relieved when his time came to pass the baton of responsibility and purpose to Joshua, given the 40 years he had to endure with the people of God in the wilderness. And we're no different. We're just like them in a lot of ways. We do have some advantages and When you do, you are more accountable to whom much is given more is required. So America is highly culpable for her uh, Israelite rebellion as well. Uh, We need a neo-transition of leadership in our country to get us back to the real promises of God and deliver us from these fictitious systems of hope that are rooted in an antichrist system and a carnal, secular um, promise of material blessing and, and world dominance. Nothing could be further from the truth when it comes to the real nature of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not meat, is not drink, is not material goods, is not land, is not property. The kingdom of God is righteousness and peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost, and eternity with God, and the ownership of the universe. That's what the kingdom of God promises. And the New Testament tells us Abraham owns the world, not just a piece of real estate over in the Middle East. May God open your eyes to the reality of the gospel today. Your Bible, every time you read the Old Testament, is not about Moses. It's not even about Joshua. Nor is it about the children of Israel. It's about the true and the living God revealed to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you don't wear those lens, you will never see the truth. So the title of our message again is Arise, Move, and Go from Moses to Joshua, Leadership Transition. Now Moses was privileged, as you guys know, to look on the promise God told Moses, go up to the top of Moab and look out over all of the land. But he could not do what Joshua would do. Moses would look at the land. Joshua would lead them in. Now, there is a subtle but marked difference between looking at something and possessing something. It's the differences I've told you for many years, like passing by one of those fabulous Fabulous shops where you can see the garments on the mannequins in the window. 
And you can imagine yourself purchasing that $3,000 suit or that $3,000 dress. You're looking in the window and your mind is going everywhere. It's one thing to look at it in the window. And it's another thing to be able to purchase it, put it on, see how it fits, see how it feels, see how it contours to you. The difference between Moses and Joshua is that Moses could only bring us to the brink. Joshua takes us in. And I'm not talking about the Old Testament, Joshua. I'm talking about Yeshua, Hashim, Kyrios, Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. All of us are beneficiaries of the real kingdom if you know him by faith. This is something Joshua is about to teach us as well as we look at certain things that make up Joshua's fundamental life. Today we're going to try to do a kind of overview of the ministry of Joshua. There's so much to the uh, ministry of Joshua, but I want to do an overview under four points. His miraculous entry, a magnificent campaign, then a monumental conclusion, and finally a message of triumph, not in Joshua, but in Jesus. As we know, those things that were written aforetime were written to show us greater realities as they are summed up in Jesus. So, what we think about when we think about Joshua and, and Moses as Numbers 27 is laying out for us is the fact that God chose Joshua, okay? God is the one that chose Joshua. When, when Moses is told by God that it's time for you to look out over the hill, but it's time for you to pass the baton, uh, God told uh, Moses, particularly Joshua, will be the man who will lead them in. Joshua will be the one that has to do the work. Look at verse 18. And the Lord said unto Moses, take thee who? Joshua. So Moses didn't recommend Joshua. God chose Joshua. Now that's a big difference between earthly kingdoms and divine kingdoms. Like we love to choose men, but every time we choose a man, if that's not the man God chose, it's going to be the wrong man. Israel chose Saul, but God chose David. And this is why our politics goes amok all the time. We're the one choosing our presidents instead of really letting God raise up somebody to lead this crazy epileptic country I live in. Joshua was chosen by God and Joshua was called by God and Joshua was confirmed by God in our text. You'll notice that what the language was, was call Joshua. And then when you call Joshua, notice what it says in verse 19, set him before Eleazar the priest. Why? Because Eleazar is the religious representation of the people. He represents Christ as our Melchizedek. He's the mediator between God and us. Now Joshua Joshua, the leader, needs to actually have the transfer of blessing given to him through the priesthood. There needs to be a public witness to all the people that Joshua is coming under the authority of God via the priesthood. Because the role of the priesthood is to actually ask what God's will is confer it upon the king so that the king can execute it among the public people. Did that make some sense? Let me see if I can help you if you don't understand that. The high priest is always at the pinnacle. 
He represents the dominion of heaven. He has fellowship with God directly. The king is on the earth as the earthly representative of the people to lead them through their excursions. The king must always be in fellowship with the high priest. Now, I'm glad we have a high priest who is also our king. That means we never have to worry about him breaking communication with the high priest. We never have to worry about him being out of the will of the living God. In fact, the three major offices, prophet, priest, and king, are all summed up in Jesus. Y'all know that, right? But we get to enjoy them in their categories throughout the Old Testament because they are patterns and types for us. So we are seeing the triad here. Moses transitioning to Joshua, Joshua coming before the high priest, God affirming it by saying that Joshua is a man full of the spirit of God, as was Moses. And that's critically important to the task as well. Notice what it says before the congregation and give him charge in their sight. Joshua becomes exceedingly important for us in this matter. It's extremely important for you to know he was chosen. He was called and he's confirmed. There is a fullness in the life of Joshua that I don't want you to miss. I want you to know that God has plainly said of Joshua, he is a man in whom is the spirit of the living God. Verse 18, part C, a man in whom is the spirit. Critical to leadership is the person who is himself possessed by the spirit of God. Because the leadership now is a representative of God. How can he lead God's people if he doesn't know God? If there isn't an intimate connection between him and God, he's a farce. He's a scam. He's a pretender. He's a facsimile of reality. But if the spirit of God is not in him, then he is none of God's. Haven't we learned that in Romans 8? If the spirit of God does not dwell in you, you are none of God's. Now, God can govern everybody. He does. Moses said it, if you saw it, you are the God of the spirits of all flesh. Isn't that what he said? Now, it's really important to understand that in this crazy world of sound bites and arguments. Everybody lives and moves and has their being in God. You really need to know this. And what that means is anytime God wants to pull back the veil from their willing deception, God can and he does frequently to let them know who he is. You don't have to argue with people and hogtie them and try to break their head open and then pour, pour some truth into them. They already have the witness of God in them. They just resist it. They press it down. They press it down unsuccessfully. And so it's important for you to know our God runs a whole world. Everybody has to deal with the one true and living God, does, do they not? Right. So you can play around and argue and fight and kill each other over all kind of other pagan deities. But that's nothing but a distraction. The one true and living God runs everything. And if you want efficiency in your ministry and advancement for God, keep your eye centered on God, who he is and what he wants you to do. And you'll see success. But see, we're dealing with so many distractions today that we can't accomplish anything because we think the battle is ours. But see, the reality is the battle is the Lord's. And what Joshua is about to teach you and me is how he successfully accomplished all that God had called him to do. Joshua 
operating out of the fullness of the spirit, furthered the purposes of God in such a way he brought Israel to the total fulfillment of everything that God had told them that they would have. Thinking about whether or not they obtained it all, Joshua plainly told them this in Joshua 21, verse 43 through 45. Let your Bible teach you now, not CNN News or Fox News. Let your Bible teach you the truth. Listen to what it says. Listen to what Joshua says before this old brother has the last worship service. He's going to gather everybody together in chapter 23. We'll talk about it in a moment. He says, I'm going home. I've given you everything that God has told me to give you. Now the rest is on you. Listen to what he says. And the Lord gave, this is Joshua talking. And the Lord gave unto Israel what? Stop right there. And the Lord did what? Gave unto Israel what? Some of the land, a piece of the land, most of the land, all the land. It was clearly articulated by Joshua that they got it all. Under Joshua's ministry, the totality of the domain that God had told Abraham he would give to a seed, they received in the 15th century B.C. Notice what it says. The Lord gave them all the land which he sware to give unto their fathers, and they did what? Now, see, that's, that's the role that Joshua played taking the promise and making them possess it. That's the role that Jesus did, taking the promises of God and causing us to possess them. Again, the difference is between observing and possessing. Joshua is the man that helped them possess it. Moses is the man that led them up to it. Big difference. Moses could never say what Joshua was saying. Do you hear that? He could never say that. He could only bring them up to the wish to the vision, to the view, but they had not with Moses crossed the Jordan into that promise. They were window shopping with Moses. Why, pastor? Because you can never be saved by the works of the law. Moses represents the law. John said it in John chapter one, verse 16. Listen to it. And of his fullness, the same fullness that Joshua had, and of his fullness, all we have received. We don't get our fullness from Moses. We don't even get our fullness from Torah. We don't get our fullness from the law. We get our fullness from the one who is the embodiment of Torah, of the law, and his name is Jesus. Listen to what John says. This is John chapter one, verse 16, please. John chapter 116, this is the New Testament expression, and of his fullness have we all what? And law for law. Is that what it says? And old covenant for old covenant. Is that what it says? I'm getting ready to teach y'all something if you want to learn today. The reason you and I are the people of God is because of grace, not works. It's because of faith in Christ, not by the works of the law. We are only children of grace by faith in Jesus because Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness. There's no way any of us in this room could ever fulfill God's law. Did you know that? That makes you a sinner. And according to the Bible, the sinner, the wages of sin is what? But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ our Lord. So men and women that enjoy the fullness of the spirit of God, we enjoy it by faith, don't we? Because we have been granted the grace to look to him who loved us and gave himself for us. Now, y'all may not know, but Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is the New Testament Greek equivalent to the Old Testament Joshua or Yeshua. 
And this is why Yeshua is such a great model of Christ, particularly in the area that we're dealing with. Y'all got that? Right. So it's important for you to get it. Verse 17 sums up my argument. Here it is. John 1 17 tells us for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus the Christ. These are qualitatively different concepts. Law can show you, it can point to you, it can condemn you, it can inform you. Only grace can save you. Only grace can change you. Some of us know that, don't we? Some of y'all grew up in church all your life pretending to know God. And then one day the gospel came in power and penetrated your stony heart and awakened your soul from the dead and gave you a vision of God's glory in Christ and everything changed. And from that day to now, men and women who have seen the glory of God in Christ, they know what life is. He that hath the son hath life. He that does not have the son of God does not have life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Does that make some sense? Big difference between Moses and Jesus. Big difference between old and new. Big difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Big difference. And you need to remember that. And so as we look at this ministry of Joshua, as I stated, his personal ministry never stumbles. He always advances. He only had one little hiccup and it wasn't him. It was some crazy brother that thought he could actually start his own little side business in AI. Remember that? Where he's going to get 200 shekels of, of, of silver in a Babylonian garment. He's going to start a little business. But how many of you guys know that when God gives us his grace, he gives us everything necessary for life and godliness? We don't need to help God with money. We don't need to help God with material things. We don't need to build on the little seed that he gives. God owns the world. And he can cause you to make, he can cause to make all grace abound in your life, right? So that you have everything that you need. And this fella in, in, uh, in Ai, his name was Achan. Y'all remember the account after the fool when the law of total judgment was on that city so that Israel was not supposed to touch a thing in that city. It was under the curse, under the curse. That was the only little hiccup that we see going on. And it wasn't even Joshua's fault. Unfortunately, Joshua had to Joshua had to destroy him and his whole family because his whole family bought into that lie of the prosperity gospel. The whole family had to die. You guys remember that? All right. Let me help you with point number one. What makes Joshua so outstanding and prodigious in the eyes of God is that God said he had his spirit. God had uh, Eleazar because Aaron is dead now to lay hands on him. And Moses laid hands on him and gave him of his authority. That's what God says. You shall put your honor upon Joshua so that the people would look now at Joshua with the same honor. They looked at you. This is called a transition of authority. From one person to another point. Number one, this is how powerful God was in the life of Joshua. All a a miraculous entry into the promised land is not to be missed. They're up against the shore. Joshua chapter one, verse two tells us they're up against what is called the Jordan River. Down at the lower part of the Jordan, they are. We'll get a little visual of that as they make their way into the uh, land of Israel or Palestine at this point, or Canaan, as more biblically speaking, because their first campaign of war will be with those of Jericho. Joshua chapter one, verse two says this. 
Moses, my servant, is dead, Joshua. Now, therefore, arise and go. That's our theme, is it not? Arise and go over this Jordan, you and all the people unto the land which I do give unto them, even the children of Israel. Listen to what it says over in verse five and six. Then shall there shall not any man be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. Boy, is that not good promises? God said, boy, I'll roll with you like I did with Moses. I'm not going anywhere. I will keep you in all your ways. Everybody will know how bad you are. But, and this is something you and I must always know, when God calls you to a task, he also calls you to accountability. He told Joshua, listen to it. Listen to this verse seven. Only be thou strong and very courageous that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded thee. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left hand that thou mayest what? Whithersoever you go. What a good word. Now, if it wasn't for God's mercy. Joshua would have messed up just like Moses did. Now, we know our brother Moses messed up, didn't he? That's why he couldn't go over, because Moses is what? A type of the law. Joshua does everything that God tells him to do. It's not because Joshua is righteous. We're dealing with typical patterns, aren't we? It's because Joshua points to the one man in the world who did everything that God told him to do. His name is Jesus. What that means is when you look for a spotless lamb, the only place you're going to find it is in God's son. To be spotless means to be sinless. Jesus said to the rulers who kept rejecting him, which one of you convinces me of sin? He says, which one of you going to find fault with me? Even when they condemned him in a faulty way. What did Pilate say? I find no fault in this man at all. He let them know you are about to kill an innocent man. But I love it because John the Baptist said it three and a half years earlier. Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. What I'm sharing with you is that the ministry of Joshua represents the ministry of Christ in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Y'all got that? It's important for you to capture it if you're going to understand typology between the old and the new. And most people don't get it. This is why I told you last week, very seldom are your churches preaching the gospel from the Old Testament because they don't understand the patterns and don't believe that Jesus comes in the volume of the book. It's written of him ultimately, is it not? And can y'all see where I'm going with this? I'm showing you how you take the New Testament reference, land it on the Old Testament and confirm what the Old Testament is intending by the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, we don't have time to fully work through all of the wonderful things that Joshua did. But I want to let you know that God intends for us to pause and get it that the crossing over from the wilderness in Moab into the promised land was no small matter. It was only the River Jordan. But that's not the point. The point is, is that God brought them into that land miraculously. We're in chapter three now. and We need to regard what chapter three says. Chapter three of Joshua, verse one through six, lays out the charge that God gives to Joshua. Notice what he says in verse uh, chapter three, verse one through six. And Joshua rose up early in the morning 
and they removed from where they were, which was where? Shittim. And came to Jordan, he and all the congregation of Israel, and they lodged there before they passed over. So they came right up to the edge and they did what? They stopped. Why? Because Joshua was not going to cross over the Jordan without instructions from God. Why? Because the instructions of crossing Jordan is a deep, deep metaphysical, redemptive, spiritual principle about crossing from death to life. And you don't just cross from death to life in your own strength. You and I are dead in trespasses and sins. If a miracle does not wake you up from your spiritual deadness, you'll remain dead. You can be dead in the midst of the church. Am I making some sense? This is why Jesus said, let the dead, what? Bury the dead. And those are categorical distinctions, are they not? Not a physical dead person burying a physical dead person, but a spiritually dead person burying a physically dead person. They're both dead. And the Bible tells us before God saved us, you and I were dead. We weren't just sick. We weren't weak or misguided. We love to misdiagnose our spiritual condition, don't we? Ladies and gentlemen, before the Spirit of God entered your life, you were dead. You were dead. Under the condemnation and guilt of sin, the tyranny of Satan, you were blind, you were ignorant, you were dumb, you were dead, you were weak. You, not only were you weak, you were in rebellion against God. Am I making some sense? If it's not God's grace, you will never turn around and go the right way. Sometimes we be looking at people and we be trying to act like we can see what God sees. We'll often say, I know they saved. I just know they saved. I know they saved. Living like hell, I know they saved. Dead in trespasses, is, I know they saved. Having nothing to do with God, I know they saved. Don't even want God from the man on the moon, I know they saved. You can hear them sounding like the devil, I know they saved. You see how we delude ourselves? Jesus said, either make the tree good or the tree bad. A bad tree cannot bring forth good fruit. And a good tree won't consistently bring forth bad fruit. This is why you and I don't buy into postmodern fantasy, because we can lie to ourselves. See, the reality is we all need truth. Because only the truth will set you free. Son, you're lost. Dad, how do you know? You don't know God. Son, you're lost. Dad, how do you know? You don't want God. Son, you're lost. Dad, how do you know? You don't see your need of God. Son, you're lost. How do you know? You have no impulse to get right with God. Son, you're lost. Dad, how do you know? You have not yet acknowledged you are a hell-bound sinner. And if God doesn't save you, you are justly going to hell. See what I'm saying? See, now that person, the honest sinner, has hope for glory. The honest sinner has hope for glory. I remember the day some of my beautiful daughters came on in and said it. They grew up in the church. They were learning hymns before they can just speak. You know how pastors do. We torment them early. You got to use your Bible and the hymn book to learn how to speak English. They could sing Bible verses and, 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 and do all of the external religious stuff. And then one day when they were teenagers, God showed them they were sinners. That's a revelation. And it's a miracle. We call it supernatural work. Except you be born again, you will never see the kingdom of God and you'll never enter in. Am I making some sense? 
A lot of times what you and I have to do as so-called saved folks is just keep praying for your kids because you can't make them saved. And you're not going to save them when you want to save them. They'll be saved when God wants to save them. This is why we get all, Lord, why haven't you saved my child? You know, come you ain't saved my child. That's up to God. When and where is up to God. Most of the time, you're going to save them apart from you. Because most of the time, you're in the way. You're not like Moses. We like keep, keep the law on them, 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 keep the law on them. And no one is saved by the works of the law. Am I making some sense? All right. And so Joshua's account is remarkable because they are about to do something that is going to actually speak to all the nations that are watching. Jericho's watching. The other nations are watching. Did y'all know that? They're watching. What are these Israelites about to do in the month of April and May when the waters are so profuse coming down from the Jordan into the Red Sea? What are they about to do? What is this group of people piling up here at this corner about to do? And see, this is how God witnesses to the world through our obedience to him. You often think that it's all about you. It's not really even about you. Your obedience in mind is for other people. It's for God to manifest his glory. A miraculous entry into the kingdom. So into the uh, through the through the water. So notice what it says in verse three. He commanded the people saying, when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord, your God and the priests and the Levites bearing it, then you shall remove from your place and do what? Go after it. See, the impetus for them to move over into the promised land was not their own compelling. It was when they saw the ark. And the ark and the priest upholding that ark and moving that ark into the Jordan River. Did y'all get that? In other words, what God was saying to the people of God, you and I can't go forward until the ark, which represents God, goes before us. That makes some sense, does it not? And so what Israel was told was, look at the ark. When the ark is in a certain place, then you move forward. This is the doctrine of the forerunner principle, is it not? Jesus is our great shepherd. He goes in and out among us. That's what Joshua was called to do. Remember, he shall lead the people in. He shall lead the people out. And he's a shepherd. Is not Jesus our great shepherd? Does he not lead us beside still waters? Does he not bring us into green pastures? Does he take us through the valley of the shadow of death? Is he not going to secure us for all eternity and glory? Now, what that means is you and I are sheep and our job is to follow him. See, it's extremely important to get the typology here, because while they are at the brink of the Jordan, guess what? They're in formation. Remember, I told you how formation went. I wish I had the map. You got three tribes in front, three tribes on one side, three tribes on the other, three in the back. And the ark or the tabernacle is in the middle. Y'all got that? Did y'all get that? In the New Testament, that's called Christ in you, the hope of glory. Did that come home? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Because every believer is a tabernacle of the living God. We are the temple of the most high God. Christ in you, the what? Hope of glory. But when the formation changes, where now the tabernacle is in front of you, in front of you so that you're behind it. Are you ready? This is Christ, the king of glory going before you. 
Christ, the hope of glory in you. Christ, the king of glory in front of you. We follow him. He's the first one going into the water. See, the river Jordan represents death. And the Ark of the Covenant had to go into the water. The priest bore it upon those staves, as you know. Those staves are called faithfulness and true. Because the Ark couldn't be touched by sinful hands. And so the ark is taken into the midst of the water. We're still on the brink and we're watching the ark go into the water. Are we not? That is a foreshadow of Jesus's baptism and then his cross. That's because Jesus must be our good shepherd to lead us through death unto life. Y'all got that now, do you? It's important to get Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ before you, the king of glory. Lead me like a shepherd, lead me. And that's what we see here being, uh, being uh, inscribed to Joshua by God. Notice what it says over in verse, uh, verse four. Yet there shall be a space between you and it about 2,000 what? By measure. That's about a mile, you guys. There's an argument between what kind of cubits we're dealing with, Babylonian or, or Roman cubits or what have you. And cubits went anywhere from 18 inches to 24, sometimes 30 inches. But it amounted to about a mile distance where the ark goes before the people of God. And that would make sense. I told you this before. We're still dealing with um, we're dealing with over 600 uh, able men who can go to war with families. You multiply, pl- multiply that by three, you're talking about a million and a half people. That's not a lot of people. That amount of people you sh- shows up at Times Square every year when they want to have a big old party. Did that make some sense? That amount of people were at the Washington Monument when it came to Martin Luther King and other kind of major events. So I'm just letting you know, a million point three people is not a whole lot of people. Anyhow, they had to wait back because they needed at least a mile or so so that the people could see the ark. Their goal was never to go before the ark. The ark was to go before them. This is why for us, Christ is our forerunner because he entered into death for us. Am I making some sense? And the beautiful thing about the text here that we're going to just briefly look at now is how the miraculous occurs and the Gentiles We'll see it. The nations will certainly see this event as it transpires. Notice what it says over in verse five and six. And Joshua said unto the people, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow. The Lord will do what? That's a term for miracles among you. And Joshua spake unto the priests, saying, take up the ark of the covenant and pass over before the people. And they took up the ark of the covenant and went before the people. Everything is set right now. Notice the intent. Verse seven. And the Lord said unto Joshua, this day will I be magnified, will I magnify you in the sight of all Israel. And they may know that I was with, as I was with Moses, so I shall be with you. Do you guys see that? Right. So Joshua gives them some some amazing instructions as to what they should do here. If you look with me now over at verse 13, and it shall come to pass as soon as the souls of the priests that bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of Jordan, that the waters shall be cut off from the waters that come down from above, that's north, and they shall stand upon a heap. Now, is that not a miracle? It came to pass that when the people removed their tents to pass over Jordan, that was a 
fairly arduous process. And the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And as they that bear the Ark were come unto the Jordan, and the feet of the priests that bear the Ark were dipped in the brim of the water, for the Jordan floweth over all the banks at that time of the year. This is really an amazing sort of irony on God's part. He waited until it was the most difficult time of the year and it was called harvest because harvest symbolically is a picture of once you sow your seed, you wait for your harvest and then you enter into your blessing. And so God is bringing Israel in at the time of the harvest so that they can reap the benefits of obedience to God for 40 years. See, and that's an application and extraction for you and me. Sometimes God will make you wait a long time. I'd rather wait until the harvest than to cut it short before and try to get the pittance of what my own hands have done. Wait on the Lord and be of good courage. He will strengthen your heart and he will cause you to enter into your blessing. And see with the people of God, let me just say this and keep moving. Timing is everything. Like God's always on time. So stop all that arguing about how, how long, oh Lord. Because listen, he's not going to answer you. God's not going to answer you. His time is not your time. And if you act too much of a fool, he'll let you be 80 years old before he starts to work in you like he did with Moses. I know I just offended somebody right there, but it's true. Like, see, God can use the old and the young. Most of the time he uses young people because they're too stupid to know. And all they need to do is trust God. And and they're better off when you trust God than for us old people who think we know everything. Then God knows how to stimulate the young people in certain ways that we can't be stimulated. God knows how to motivate young people. Now, I would recommend you act like Joshua and Caleb because those were the only two brothers who saw the miracle 40 years earlier at the Red Sea. Everybody else is dead because they all were complaining, particularly the old people. You brought us out here to kill us. Here, these young people are right up on the promise now, are they not? See, God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should repent. We say it all the time here at Grace. God can't lie, God can't fail, and God won't change. Right, but you and I do all three of those all the time. That's why he'll leave you alone and use somebody else if you get to clowning. <laughs> you better wait on God. See, and, and, and it'd be okay if he graces you to act like Joshua and Caleb because Caleb didn't mind being 80 years old. Joshua didn't mind. See, Joshua's old now. Do you understand that? Joshua's a good 60, 70 years old now. We, we're going to know that here in a moment. That's, that's pretty old for the Lord to call you to a work, isn't it? How old are you, man? I'm 70 years old. Yeah, the Lord calling you. <laughs> uh-huh. And Caleb said, yeah, Lord, let's do this. Let's do this. I'm, I'm built for this. Let's do this. Y'all remember that? I'm built for this. Age is just a what? Yeah, y'all say that. <laughs> Subpoint B in our, subpoint A in our outline, the ark leads the way. Y'all see that? The ark leads the way because the ark represents Jesus. See, the ark is called the ark of the testimony, and the testimony is about Christ. The ark is the ark of testimony. That's what it's called. And the testimony is about who? It's about Jesus. 
As soon as you miss that, you miss your Bible. God testified to Israel as to who he was when he brought them out of the Red Sea. Then he testified to them at Mount Sinai when he gave them the law. Then he testified again when they complained about bread and water and he gave them bread and water. Y'all got that? And then he testified to them again when they complained about wanting somebody else to lead them, but Moses and Joshua. And then he told them, no, Moses and Aaron. He told them, no, Aaron is the man. And so Aaron's rod that budded, the manna and the law are all inside the ark, are they not? That's Hebrews chapter nine. Y'all got that? So what's in the ark? It's the testimony of God's goodness to Israel and the testimony of Israel rebellion against God. That is the gospel. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But God, who is rich in mercy, wherewith he loved us, even while we were in trespasses and sins, has placed us in Jesus the Christ. He's the manna. He's the law. He's the high priest, is he not? And so when we look at the Ark of the Covenant, what we realize is a God of justice is also a God of mercy. Am I making some sense? The only reason these hard-headed, rebellious Americans are getting ready to cross over from the wilderness into the promised land, and that wasn't a faux pas, I know what I was saying, is because of the mercy of God. Did you hear me? Mercy is shrouding all these people. Because we just learned over the last two or three weeks that the seeds of their mom and daddy were in them too. Complaining and arguing and having fits, right? But God is faithful to his own promise, is he not? So he's going to bring them in. And let's look briefly at how the ark stands in the midst. The ark leads the way, but the ark also what? Stands in the mist. The ark stands in the mist. Look at verses 3, 13 through 15. Look at verses 13 through 15 uh, in Joshua chapter 1. This is the uh, Joshua chapter 3, rather. This is what it says. And as soon as, as soon as it came to pass, the souls of the priests that bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the flesh, rest in the waters of Jordan, that the waters of Jordan shall be cut off from the waters that come down from above, and they shall stand as a heap. And it came to pass when the people removed from their tents to pass over Jordan and the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before them. And as they bear the ark were come unto Jordan, the feet of the priests that bear the ark dipped in the brim of the water for Jordan overflowed all its banks at that time. Verse 16, that the waters which came down from above, stood and rose up and heaped very far from the city of Adam, that is by, by, uh, besides Zeratan, and those that came down toward the sea plain, this would be the Dead Sea, and even the Salt Sea, they failed and they were cut off, and the people did what? Pass right over against them. I had a map. If you have that map, I want to pull it up, just give you a little visual of uh, 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 the ostensive uh, challenges that were going on here. Just because you're reading names like the city of Adam, it's other Hebrew names really in the original context. But you guys see this vision here? Right, so you see way at the top, Adam? You see all that blue? That's the overflowing river of Jordan. Y'all got that? You see down at the bottom, the camp of Gilgal? That's the region of Israel. You see down at the bottom where it says a two-mile crossing? 
That's the general proximity at that time of Israel crossing over the Jordan into the area of Jericho. If we had a different map, you'd see that they're moving into the area of Jericho and there's a lot of other land way down here. Notice what it says. Way up at the city of Adam is estimated to be how many miles? 20 miles. So the waters were cut off way up at the top. Now, this is north. Water comes down from the north, does it not? Way at the top, the waters were cut down. Now, you and I may not have any idea what God is saying there, but he knows what he's doing because he's doing a miracle for all the nations to see. Now, as far as I'm concerned, he could have cut the waters off right there by Tel Jericho, right? He could have cut them off right there, like five miles away. He could have cut them off, but he wanted to cut them off way up at the top of the city of what? Because that's where sin begins. It begins in Adam, right? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. By one man, sin entered into the world. Adam one is the cause of the Jordan River, which is a picture of death, is it not? And now we have to have a new Adam that dries up the river by his own death for us to cross over into life. Does that make some sense? So God is good, is he not? God is good because God actually knows we need a new representative, a new Adam that's able to reverse the curse that the first Adam brought into this world. Okay, so it's just just something for you to think about because they're crossing over from the depth of the wilderness into the promises of God. That's just a very, uh, very controversial, very terse, very limited vision, but it gives you a little bit of something to think about as we are looking at it. The ark stands in the midst of the river as we see and the people cross over. I love what verse 17 says. Look at it again. And the priest that bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground. Now, again, if we were to stop right there and think it through, how could the ground be dry when it was just wet with water unless God is doing a miracle? I love narrative theology. I totally get it. Can I help you? When God pays for your sin, he pays for all your sin. He pays for all your sin, past, present and future. He doesn't even leave the effects of your sin on you when you're in Christ. The goal of the gospel is to justify you, sanctify you, and glorify you. Did that make some sense? Hold on now, I want you to get this. Dry ground means that God never ever sees your sins when Christ paid for them on the cross. If our feet are getting wet with the remainder of our sin for which Christ died, it means he only paid for part of our sin. And what I understand is if you transgress at one part of the law, you're guilty of the whole law. You might as well let the waters come back all over top of us because nobody's getting into glory on the grounds of their own righteousness. See, the Israelites were able to have what we call experiential grace, experiential sanctification, because as they crossed over, they experienced the ground being dried. And as they're walking now, they have the visceral experience of a miracle happening. But I want to remind you of something as we continue. They are constantly looking at the ark because it's the ark, which is the grounds upon which they can cross over. They are not crossing over in their own strength. It's because the Lord Jesus Christ stood in the midst of hell on our behalf. He swallowed up death. 
His feet bore the fiery wrath of hell. He absorbed the eternity of God's judgment in himself. He led captivity captive. He brought us up out of the pit of hell and let us walk across dry shod in the mercy and goodness of the totality and sufficiency of his accomplished righteousness in our behalf. Did that make some sense, children of God? Not a drop of muddy sin when Christ is your savior. Not a drop of muddy sin. Now you and I deal with sin in this life, do we not? But what have I told you? Three words, y'all never forget this. Y'all ready? It's paid for. That's the difference between being saved and not. I'm a redeemed sinner. I'm a redeemed sinner. Did anybody get that? Did you, did you get that, Mario? It's paid for. I have to explain it. God might discipline me, all that stuff, but it's paid for. Right. He that heareth my words and believes on him that sent me has everlasting life and will never come into condemnation because he has passed over the Jordan into life eternal. Is that good news or what? Right. The text says, and the priests bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on the ground in the midst of Jordan. And all the Israelites passed over on dry ground until all the people were passed. What? Pass what? Pass what? Pass clean over. I know grammar well. I understand it means totally over, but I'm going to do a little bit of license right here. By the time you get on the other side of your sin, you have been cleansed by the blood and washed by the blood of the Lamb of God. Am I making some sense? Yes, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 tells us, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of the living God. Do you believe that? Yes. They feel good now, don't they? They feel good having crossed over. Two things that this witness does for them. They are reminded of what God has said to their parents. Because that word came to their parents. Then they are now being reminded of how God has chosen Joshua to be the point man. This was a supernatural, miraculous day. Y'all got that? Remember what God said back in verse 7, chapter chapter 27. He said, Joshua, I'm going to do this and I'm going to give you the honor that I gave Moses. These people are going to know you are my servant. Right. Now, this is going to get into something that I want to tie down in terms of what we call redemptive theology. They're crossing over Jordan, are they not? They're crossing over Jordan because of a transition between Moses and who? This is a recapitulation principle that moves forward into the monarchial period because you remember how Elijah and Elisha were at the River Jordan as well. Second Kings chapter two, you guys remember that? And Elisha asked of Elijah to give him a double portion of the blessing. And Elijah said, if you see me taking up into heaven, then I'll give you a double portion. Did he not see him go up into heaven? That was a transition of authority, was it not? And as Elijah is going up, what does Elijah do? Drop his mantle. And the Bible tells us in that text that Elisha picked up the mantle and said, where is the God of Elijah? And he took that mantle and hit the River Jordan. And what did the River Jordan do? It split in half 
and Elisha goes over into Jericho again where the prophets were. And you know what the text said? I'm not going to take you there because you should know your Bible. The text says as Elisha was heading towards the prophets, the prophets could see that the spirit of Elijah was on Elisha transition of authority. We're not done yet. There are two other witnesses. Remember out of the mouth of what? Two or three. So we got Moses and we got Joshua. We got Elijah and we got Elisha, right? This is summed up in Matthew's gospel chapter three, where John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets is in the river at the river Jordan baptizing people. Is he not? John is baptizing them and he's telling them, listen, I am not the one. I'm preparing you for the one. You filthy sinners, Jews and Gentiles. I love the Bible because the Bible made it very clear. Just because you were a Jew doesn't mean you were saved. Just because you were circumcised doesn't mean you're right with God. You need to come to the water too. A new thing was happening. They had to cross over all again and admit that they were no better than the Gentiles. No better than the Palestinians. They both needed the same remedy. I love it, don't you? John said, I am a voice crying in the wilderness. Prepare you the way of the Lord. Make straight his paths. And then all of a sudden, you know what the Bible said? He looked up and saw one coming. And God had already told John, the one upon whom you see the spirit of God descending, he it is who is my son. Y'all remember that account? So now we have a transition of authority taking place here, do we not? From John to Jesus. Now who's running the show? Yahweh, Yeshua, Jesus, Christos, Kyrios, the Lord Jesus Christ. He comes up out of the water. He goes into the wilderness to be tested of the devil. There it is. That's your, that's your recapitulation principle. And when he overcomes the test, he begins preaching the gospel, right? And what does he say? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. We have now come to the final typology of Jesus in Joshua. Jesus is in the midst, is he not? Jesus is about to do ministry for how long? Three and a half years, is he not? Is Jesus going to fail? Is he going to falter? Not at all. Everything he does for three and a half years will be marvelous, miraculous, supernatural, and progressive. Will it not? He will preach the gospel. He will fulfill his messianic calling. Everything about Messiah will be fulfilled in Jesus' ministry. And Joshua's life is a pattern of that. Y'all keeping up with me? Y'all okay? All right, let's go on to our next point and see what I mean by that with Joshua, Yeshua, a pattern of the Christ that will come under point number two, a magnificent campaign, a magnificent campaign. That's exactly what God said that Joshua would do. God would be with him in everything. Now, look with me at chapter 10. I'm going to start in chapter 10. Because again, we are doing an overview and chapter 10 is where the wars of Joshua against the pagan kings of the land is being executed. OK, chapter 10 gives us a an encompassing of multiple battles that Joshua fought. 
And all I want you to do in chapter 10 is see a few verses. I'm going to elucidate them. Therefore, the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jamuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered themselves together and went up, they all and their hosts, and encamped before Gibeah and made war against you. Y'all got that? Now, Gibeah was one of these parentheticals. Gibeah is an exception to the rule because Gibeah Gibeon made a, uh, a covenant with, with Joshua and them, and they entered in under wild. Okay, beautiful thing. They were smart because the rest of the kings wanted to fight against Joshua. There was no chance. The Gibeonites became servants with Joshua. Y'all got that? The Gibeonites represent you and me because we are smart enough to know you can't win this battle against God. God's going to have a people for himself to the praise of the glory of his grace from every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue. Is that so? And as we watch the gospel, make its way throughout the world. We are glad to hear the words, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel, right? Teaching them to observe whatsoever things I have commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, and I will be with you to the end of the world. That was the scope of the apostolic ministry when Jesus passes the baton to them. Y'all keeping up with me? But the battles that Jesus fought in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are typified by the battles that Joshua was fighting. And the text tells us here in chapter 10, verse 7 and 8, these words. I want you to capture it. We caught verse 5. Verse 7 says in our text, So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Do not fear them. I have delivered them into your hand. There shall not a man of them stand before you. Now, the only way that could be true is if God was with Joshua. You got that? We're dealing with a transcendent war here. I'll make a, I'll make a commentary, a caveat on this as we get through. I just want you to read the verses with me. Look with me at verse 9 and 10. So Joshua therefore came unto them suddenly and went up from Gilgal all night. And the Lord did what? discomfited them before Israel and slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the way that goeth up to Beth Horon and smote them at Azekah all the way unto Makedah. And, and the Hebrews would have known this territory. You don't need to know it, but they would have known this territory. I must say this to you, that the campaign taking place in chapter 10 is a long, arduous campaign. This is how long and arduous it is. Notice with me again in, in chapter, uh, chapter uh, 10, verse 14, these words, not 14. Cha- yeah, chapter 10, verse 14, these words. And there was no, I'm sorry, I want to start back at verse 11. And it came to pass as they fled before Israel, because they were running, and were in the going down to Bethhoron, that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto Azekah, and they died. They were more which died with the hailstones they, than they of whom the children of Israel slew with the what? I'm going to talk about that in a moment. Then spoke Joshua unto the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, son, stand thou still upon Gibeon and the moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still. Now, I, don't, I know you don't believe that, but I do. 
The sun stood still and the moon stayed until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and hastened not to go down about the whole day. And there was no day like that day before it or after it that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man for the Lord did what? Right. If you're going to extract anything from this portion of the account is what God had said earlier, that God did most of the fighting. The children of Israel did most of the chasing. Now, when God's on your side, that is what will happen in your battles. Right. So, okay, it's just a small little parenthetical here. All of us are in battles. We're fighting all kind of scenarios. But a lot of times you're in disobedience in your own battle. And you can know it because the battle is way harder for you than it should be. I'm not going anywhere. I got y'all for another 30 minutes. So y'all just getting ready to get it. It's just coming. Okay. I'm not going anywhere. Right. Because when it comes to walking with the Lord, he demands obedience. It's the obedience of faith that requires you to submit to him, particularly when God allows you to be encompassed about by your adversaries. You know, you wake up one day and you just got a bunch of trouble. Right. And you're stupid enough to want to blame it on somebody else. But you actually have the God who is the God of all the spirits of all the earth. You have a God who runs the whole universe. You got a God that's in control of everything. You got a God who can turn the hearts of the kings whithersoever he wills. You got a God, as we learn, that every way of man is right in his own eyes. Every man has his own devices, but the counsel of the Lord, that's going to stand. You got a God for whom the Bible says God can make all grace abound. He can't lie, fail, or change. How come your trial is so difficult? Your trial is difficult because you're not letting God lead you. Your trial is difficult because you're in rebellion against the God that can help you get through that trial in a way in which God is glorified and you are sanctified. Did y'all hear what I just said? in a way in which God is glorified and you're sanctified. But the problem is, you know, the one of the reasons why the enemy gets us is because we don't want to be sanctified. This is why that thing that's going on in the Middle East is a good tail whipping because there's not no sanctification going on. I'm teaching some of you guys about that right now. You're not going to do anything and prosper if you don't submit to God first. Your rebellion may allow you to win some temporal ground, but it's going to be with so much pain and so much difficulty, you wish you would have had started all over again and actually asked for proper directions to get it done. Am I making some sense? Let me drill down one more time just in case you're just really slow today. It's true. God allows men in the flesh to prosper. He allows them to act a fool. He allows men to be demonically empowered so that they achieve material, physical goals. And then they will pretend God is helping them. But that's the devil, and the devil is always a liar, and the truth is not in him. A lot of times we will say that we're believers in Christ, and we will go out and do things, and we know we're wrong. We're wrong as hell. And then we want God to cover it. But see, God's never going to cover your rebellion. Now, he's going to keep you, but he's not going to cover your rebellion. By the time he's done, you're going to wish you had never done it. You're saved. 
You sure enough saved, but you don't look like it. You don't feel like it, right? You don't have any confidence because you're walking in rebellion against God. Please understand what I'm saying. When you walk in rebellion against God, now you're fighting against your own God. You can't win. So the reason why God chastens us the way he does is because he owns us by covenant. And he's not going to let us front him in the world. See, as soon as a professing Christian thinks that you can take on this system so that everybody's looking at you and talking about you and making it about you, you're warring against God. You're working for Satan now. This is why we don't buy into what's going on over there. Because Christ is not exalted. Did y'all get what I just stated? Right, it's very important for you and I to see uh, what's going on with my present country. We, we sh- we're shuffling to try to make sure that don't happen to us because we actually started that. That whole mechanism, we started it over here. And at some point, like Moses says, be sure your sins will spy you out. And we're trying to keep the facade going, are we not? Manifest destiny. Are you kidding? Jesus is the destiny and the gospel is the manifestation. The difference between what's going on right now and Joshua is Joshua was obedient to God. Straight up obedient. Y'all got that? And this is where you and I will prosper as well. A magnificent campaign. How many people did he take out that day uh, in, in that campaign? 31 kings. Look, look at chapter 12, verse, verse 31. Look at chapter, chapter uh, 12. Verse, no, this is going to be, yeah, chapter 12, verse 31. Look at this. This is just absolutely, I thought, so you, and you can actually see it starting in, in verse 4 where he enumerates the kings. And in chapter 12, verse 31, because I want to hurry up and get done. Notice what it says. The king Atiza won all the kings. This is chapter 12, verse 24. Sorry, chapter 12, verse 24. All the kings were what? 30 and one kings. That's how many kings Joshua was fighting. 30 and one. Just let that sit. Let that sit in your head and think about if you had 31 demons you had to fight. Okay. Just want you to let that sit in your head. Okay. You need help with 31 demons. Joshua cleaned out this whole campaign by the grace of the living God. Because what Joshua represents is the presence of the kingdom of power. Keep up with me. Joshua represents the presence of the kingdom of what? Power. Power. It represents the fullness of the spirit of God being poured out as it was in the days of John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus. John preached in the power of the spirit. Jesus ministered in the power of the spirit. When the third person has weight in our life, no one can stop you. When the Holy Ghost is actually running the show, no enemy can forbid you. Am I making some sense? It's not by power, it's not by might, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. And that's what we got going on in this text. Joshua is remarkably successful. Remarkable. No other leader was successful as Joshua. And you might as well get it. Joshua accomplished what God had called him to do. And point number three, a monumental conclusion. Notice what it says over in chapter 11, verse 16. 
chapter 11, 16, because this is what is happening now, starting in chapter 13, but chapter 11 gives us a precursor. From chapter 13 to chapter 20, there's a distribution of the land. Chapter 11, notice what it says over in verse 16. This is what it says for us to count. So Joshua took all the what? So Joshua took all the land, the hills and all the south country, all the land of Goshen and the valley and the plain and the mountains of Israel and the valley of the same, even from Mount Halak that goeth up to Seir, even unto Baal God in the valley of Lebanon, unto under the mountain Hermon and all their kings he took and smote them and slew them. Joshua made war a long time with all these kings. There was not a city that that made peace with the children of Israel, save the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeah, all the others he took in battle. And you can read the rest of it for yourself. Joshua's a bad brother. Verse 23. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord said unto Moses. Joshua did what? Gave it for an inheritance unto Israel according to their divisions by their tribes and the land rested from war. All right. See, I'm a New Testament theologian, but I'm a covenant theologian. And what that means for me is I understand the correlation between the old and the new. Right. I, I, I know that there's no breaking between the old and new and creating a parenthetical period, a parentheses period. I know that the Old Testament was accomplished. I know that God gave Israel the land. I know that they rested totally in the promises. That's why chapter 21, verse 43 through 45 says God gave them everything. Look at it again. Chapter 21, verse 45. Listen at what Joshua says so we can go to the next point. Look at it. There failed not any of the good thing which the Lord has spoken to the house of Israel. What are these last four words? All came to pass. For those of you who are keeping up with me while I'm helping you understand this spurious stuff that's going on, your Bible says it all came to pass. Okay? All the territory was captured. Israel entered into rest. They were under a conditional covenant. This was not the covenant of eternal redemption. They were under a conditional covenant. You know what that means? Obedience keeps you in the land. Disobedience takes you out. Did y'all get that? For for y'all who are ignorant, still reading a bunch of this stuff that's going on, that's how you understand that. See, the big problem here today is disobedience, rebellion, massive, demonic, secular, hell-raising rebellion going on. And Ignorant, undiscerning Christians don't know that God is the same yesterday and today and forevermore. He's holy. So you really do have to be holy. And to be holy, you've got to be in his son. You can't reject his son and expect to win battles in this world. Moreover, my kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. The kingdom of God is spiritual. Right. And the obtaining of that kingdom is the obtaining of the universe. Not a piece of real estate in a desert. Y'all keeping up with me? This, this is going to hurt. This is going to hurt, but it's absolutely true. See, if you, see, you know how I know what I said is true? Our master, after his baptism, was sent into the wilderness, according to Matthew 3. According to Mark, the devil drove him into the wilderness. What that means is God allowed him to go, and the enemy drove him there. And what did Jesus do? He submitted to the test, right? Because remember what I taught you? When you're under trial, it drives you to who? 
When you let it become about you, it becomes a temptation and it drives you away from God. Jesus never let it become about him. Jesus knew that this was a battle between the father and the serpent, and Jesus is the mediator of that battle. The goal of Christ was simply to say, my father runs this show, devil. Did y'all get that? My father runs this show, devil. And all Christ did was quote scripture, did he? He didn't try to wrestle with the Satan. Satan, I rebuke you. You got all that going on in these carnal churches, and he laughing. Because no human being can rebuke Satan. No human being can take him down. Only the true and the living God. And if you're not right with God, he, 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 he's having his way with you. This is why false religion in our churches are so, so rankly blinded when it comes to the gospel and caught up in materialism. Remember what Satan said? He says, here, you can turn these stones into bread and that'll prove that you're a son of God. Did y'all get that? Well, see, now I want to help you, children of God. Do you know you're a child of God? Do you know you're a child of God? You ain't got to prove it then. You ain't got to prove it then. Somebody come to you, prove to me you're a child of God. I don't have to prove to you I'm a child of God. God has already proved to me I'm a child of God. He that hath the spirit of God has the witness in himself. The spirit bears record with our spirit that we're sons and daughters of God. I don't need to prove who I am to you, but if you hang hang around long enough, you're going to find out who I love. You're going to find out who I serve. You're going to find out who I long for. Did you hear what I just said? You're going to find out what my hope is. Got to prove nothing to you. Jesus didn't have to prove that to the serpent that he created. Then the next one, jump off, the, jump off this temple. Jump off this temple. God will catch you. Jesus wasn't insecure. <laughs> he wasn't insecure. He, he, he knew that he had made the space between the top of the uh, pinnacle of the temple and the ground. He could have just walked on down if he wanted to. But he wasn't there to show off. As you and I are not here to show off. It's not about us. It's not about us. And so when a trial comes, it's a great opportunity for you to say, Father, keep me. Because this snake is talking to me again. He's talking to me again. Father, keep me. If I would, I'd mute him. If I would, I'd censor him. If I would, I'd shut him down. But some of us have a hard time not listening to the devil. Am I making some sense? He gets inside your head and next thing you know, you actually think you're listening to him and it's you talking to you. Right. And this is because the word of God doesn't have as much sway in our life as it should. Right. So think about this. The Lord tries all of us. He lets us go through trials. But if the word of the Lord is truth, then what the Bible says is, if you are my disciple, you will continue in my word and you will know the truth and the truth will liberate you from every lie of the devil. Is that true, child of God? Right. So when the enemy comes, should not be referring to scripture, should not be standing on God's word, should not be taking what the Bible says. All of the promises of God, 1 Corinthians 1 20, 2 Corinthians 1 20, all the promises of God are yes and amen. In Jesus Christ, by the Father, unto our glory as we obey him. That's what the Bible says. Now, if that's true, then there are no questions about the promises of God to me that I have to struggle with. I know that Jesus is my yes and amen. Did that come home? All right. So that's where you're going to be tried at because you guys, we know, right? We know when we drift, 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 drift. You drift away from the vitality of the promises of God. And now you're fighting these battles in your own strength. 
See what I'm getting at? Now the word is minimized, the word of God, and the enemy's voice is maximized. This was the giants back in Numbers chapter 12 and 13, where Israel couldn't go in the first time because they couldn't hear God's word over the vision of the giants. And here we are in our account, and I'm trying to make application as we go, and I think I am making application. You and I must know, until the end, there will wars be. Wars will be till the end of the world. The war that you and I want to wage well is the spiritual war. I want to make sure that my mind is right and constantly transformed into the image of God so that I can know what the good and acceptable will of God is. I want to be able to recognize the enemy, deconstruct the enemy, shut the enemy down. I want to be able to know what it means that we do not fight against flesh and blood. I want to know what it means to fight against principalities and powers. I want to know what it means to tear down strongholds and everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of Christ. I don't care where it is. It can be in my own personal life, micro battles, or on the larger macro battle of the world. This is why I address political issues. Political issues are God's issues. If the secular world tells you that this is that way, you defer to the word of God to find out what's really going on. And you bring the word of God to bear on every propaganda the enemy brings. That's your job. And if you don't do that, stay out the war. Go, go carry the water. Let the rest of us fight this battle. If you don't want to get in the trenches for your family and for your children and for your economy, because that's what the devil wants. He wants you to listen. The third temptation that the devil gave to Christ I want you to get it. Bow down to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. This is what men are fighting over. This crazy piece of real estate. This terra firma called the world. It's too small for King Jesus. It's too small for King Jesus. You and I shouldn't be squabbling over land. This is my father's world. You see how easily we're hoodwinked? That's because people don't have the right gospel. Y'all got time for me? That's because people don't have the right gospel. This is why they killed my master. Because he didn't come to secure anybody's land. He came to secure souls. And he did. I told you a couple of weeks ago, a dividing line has been going on for a long time now. A separation between the saints and the ain'ts. And there are all kind of false bifurcations and, and conflict narratives. Y'all understand the language now that are being erected, being erected to cause you to be distracted. And they're forcing you to take sides. You wake up one day and you're stupid enough to take sides begin to argue little Lilliputian battles that don't have anything to do with the bigger picture. Jesus made it plain. My sheep hear my voice, another they will not, they will not follow. Other sheep have I that are not of this fold. They must be brought in and there will be one fold and one shepherd. Not two folds, one fold and one shepherd. That one shepherd is Jesus. That one foe is men and women from every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue who are the sheep of Yeshua. Am I making some sense? 
And the covenant of redemption doesn't tell us to fight over land. This is when the devil has won. If you bow down to me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Once you bow down to him, then you're part of the elite structures that wage wars against people to take their lands. That's when you're part of those structures. Did y'all hear me? Because in reality, all you believe is that what's here on this earth is worth living for. Did y'all hear what I just stated? Once you think that it's all about land, you have missed the gospel. You've totally missed the gospel. Totally missed the gospel. The whole world is ours. I don't have time, but God made that clear when he told Israel, as you pass through the desert, there are a whole bunch of nations. Leave them alone. I'm taking care of them. Leave them alone. Did y'all get that? Right. There's plenty terra firma for all of us. Did y'all know that? Somebody better tell Bill Gates, leave the land alone, dude. There's plenty land for everybody. Don't, don't you agree? There's plenty, plenty land for everybody, right? Like if God wanted to distribute land to all 8 billion of us, you'd have way more land than you would know to do with. Did you get that? And see, the problem is we're too stupid. If God were to give us in, in an equal, uh, equal measure, all the land, you'd be too stupid to keep it. Some fool will come and take it from you anyway. <laughs> See, that just went over most of the people's heads. If God, if, 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 if per capita, each one of us could have for ourselves individually, let's say the state of uh, Idaho or the state of North Dakota or South Dakota. Every one of us got our own place over, over the whole globe, water and land. Cause you know, some of our folks at sea folks, they like living on the water so they can live on the water. We got whole tribes and people that live on the water. Y'all know that, right? They'd rather live on the water than on the land. I get it, but you know, I'm a brother. I, I don't do water well. I sink like a rock. I sink like a rock. I, I have to swim hard. I try to float and I sink. I'm like, Lord, this is too hard for me. I sink like a rock. You got to be in shape to swim. So God has us all over the place in all kinds of regions. That's Acts 14 and 17, right? He has dispersed us all over the world according to his own design and purpose. And why should somebody come in and pillage and take over and dominate and control and then to do it in the name of God? Did y'all hear what I just stated? May God open your eyes. One more final point. Let me close down with one more final point. So Joshua actually, actually having laid this argument out, he gave conditions in chapter 23, verse 9 through 12, just in case you don't know it. We're in chapter 23, 9 through 12, but then I'm just going to make an articulation around our final point because our time is up. Um, Joshua chapter 23, verse 9 through 12. For the Lord had driven out before you great nations and strong. But as for you, no man hath been able to stand before you unto this day. This is Joshua's farewell note. One, one man of you shall chase a thousand for the Lord your God. He it is that fights for you as he has promised you. Now we believe that for ourselves. Do we not children of God? Just learn how to learn how to fight the good fight of faith. This is what we talked about last year. Did we not? Learn how to fight the good fight of faith and don't blame anybody else for your raggedy battles. Because if you fight your battles right by standing on God's word and recoursing the scripture when it comes to some of your conflicts, God will give you the full panoply to protect you. Now, you're going to get hit, but you'll never be mortally wounded. 
He might let you get knocked upside your head because what that does, it increases your impetus to pray. <laughs> if you, have you ever been cold cocked? Only a few of us in here know what that's like. Boy, you start praying real quick, don't you? Hey, because you don't want to go to sleep. Lord, I don't want to go to sleep. That brother throwing them down at me. I don't want to go to sleep. Wake me up, Lord. Give me, give me some legs so I can start running. And that's what you need to pray. Give me some legs so I can start running to the Lord Jesus. He is my strong tower, my hiding place, my refuge. As you started trying to fight that battle in your own strength. I, I was, who was I thinking about? Some, some young brother that was going through some trouble. Because, you know, we help our brothers that, that are in Christian ministry. Yes, I, I remember now. Um, talking to the testimony of our sister and our prayer, our prayer group. And this is why I tell women, you know, if your knucklehead boys end up in jail, that might be the best place for them. Because if you read your Bible carefully, faithful gospel ministry meets our brothers and sisters incarceration. That's often the only place they're going to hear the gospel. Because they didn't hear with you, you was heaping law on them all that time. You were heaping law. Then they were watching you and saw that you weren't keeping the law you was heaping. You were, you were heaping and not keeping. And then they said, you know, mama, I love you. You gave me good sense. I realize you're not doing what you told me to do so I don't have to listen to you. Or daddy. Y'all keeping up with me? Give me a few more minutes. So, you know, the thing is, we be, we be going, you know, I don't know why these kids in this generation acting up the way they do. Because they didn't have a healthy, balanced presentation of the gospel. They grew up in legalistic churches. They grew up in man-centered churches. It was all about men and not about Christ. See, when you preach like that, it means you don't trust God to work with the revelation of the glory of his son to deal with your children. I remember that vividly as my kids were getting older and the the snake in them was really starting to show up. I said, Lord. (laughs) <laughs> Woo! They, they just like me. And at that point, you know, you, you just got to pray for them, right? Like, like you just got to pray for them. So leave them alone. Let them work it out. Let them bump their head. If they have to go to jail, they got to go to jail. If they get addicted, they're going to get addicted. All that. The purpose of the gospel is to deliver souls from their worst plight ever. And it does not matter where they are. God can get them right. I remember this brother. Yeah, this brother, this young brother told his mama, you know, he's struggling in prison. And uh, he had one of them crazy witches hanging out with him in his jail cell. You never know. You might have him at work. They don't tell you that you're a witch. And uh, the, the, the brother was uh, praying to demons for him. And uh, he was having some troubles. I'm not going to go to any again because, like, y'all scared of real stuff, so I'm not going to even talk to you about real battles. People leave the church when I talk about hell and, 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 and bad stuff. Uh, but we, there's a real warfare going on. You have to, you have to know that. The, the reason why people don't believe in God is because the devil has convinced them that he don't exist. Now, when a, when a person goes through enough trouble, you know that evil exists. 
And then when you get into enough trouble and you can't get yourself out, you hope that God exists. <laughs> and then if God allows it to come back to your mind, you go, oh, yeah, that preacher said in the time of trouble, call upon me and I will deliver you and you will glorify me. And all of a sudden that boy started calling on Jesus. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus. And the next thing he knew, he was broken free from the tyranny of that demonic assault against him. Yeah, the enemy wants to get all of us. Am I making some sense? So Joshua tells them in chapter 23, verse 11 and 12, take good heed, therefore, unto yourselves that you love the Lord your God. See it? Notice what he says. Else, if, see, that's my language. Else, if you do in any wise go back and cleave unto the remnant of these nations, even these that remain among you, and shall make marriages with them and go in unto them and they to you know for a certainly that the Lord your God will no more drive out any of these nations before you, but they shall be snares and traps and scourges and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Do you see that? And, and, and Israel showed enough experience that. And it has spiritual application. What is the gospel in this in closing point number four? It really is a picture of a message of triumph only in Christ. See, as I said, Joshua is a picture of who? Jesus. And as Joshua conquered that land, Jesus is conquering the world, is he not? This is where some of you have been having the blessed, blessed, blessed eyes open to all of the Christian brothers and sisters over in that land. You don't get that in your regular media, right? And our, our precious brothers and sisters in the midst of a carnal battle and they're being killed and our ki the kids are being killed. And when you don't get that optic, you don't get to pray for them. But now you and I remember what Jesus said, right? Blessed are they when they persecute you, right? Jesus told you that when you suffer for righteousness sake. Now we know to pray for Christians over there. Because God opened your eyes. The enemy loves to change the nature of the battle. And I'm here to tell you, the believer is not into war. The believer is a mediating system of prayer and reconciliation. And at best, he has the calling that I do to be prophetic about it and be willing to tell the government that they're wrong. Herod, you're wrong. Pontius Pilate, you are wrong. Putin, you are wrong. Biden, you are wrong. Netanyahu, you are wrong. Hamas, you are wrong. The Ayatollah is wrong. The Pope is wrong. The bishop over in the Orthodox Church is wrong. You're all wrong. Because you are using carnal weapons of war in the flesh when you should be trusting the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of glory. The Bible promises us that victory is only secured in Christ. Do you believe that? Yes. 
John 15, 6 and 7. Let me quote it again for you. John 15, 6 and 7. Jesus warned us in that text. You, John, sorry, John 15, verse 6, not verse 16. John 15, 6 and 7. Listen to it. If a man abide not in me, and that's the whole issue going on. That's the whole issue going on. People are not abiding in Christ. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are born. And that's a metaphor of being completely overcome by your enemies. Your tree is supposed to be a tree of righteousness, bearing good fruit, according to Psalm 1. But when you detach yourself from the true and the living God in the person of Christ, God dries up your roots so that you have no ability to bear the fruits of righteousness. And so God gives up nations like that to war and treachery and destruction. And Jesus said it. If you do not abide in me and my word abide. Go back to verse seven, please. If you abide in me and my word abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall what? Yes. So that's axiomatic. Listen, child of God, if you abide in Christ, then you can ask him what you will. And he will manage your life in a way which will bring about his goodness in your life. But if you're not in Christ and you're not asking him, how are you going to ask God for something and don't submit to the crown rights of Jesus? And expect God to do it. Am I making some sense? This is the authority of the son of the living God. Notice what he says. You shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. All right, I'll give you my last verse. This is Ephesians chapter one, verse two. I know the verse, it may come to my head. Ephesians one, two, here's what the Bible tells us. Grace be to you and peace from God our father and who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Verse three, listen. Who has what? He has blessed us. This is, he hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Your job and mine is to find every one of those blessings and walk in those blessings because those are a past fulfilled irrevocable, irrevocable promise that God has given us. You and I need spiritual blessings. Our country needs spiritual blessings. It does not need monetary blessings. It does not need to win wars. It needs to repent. It needs God in his life. It needs the truth of God's word in his life. We need that in our home. We need that in our families. We need it in our schools. We need that with our kids. Am I making some sense? And God promises those blessings. And see, I can tell you, and I'm done here, spiritual things are way more important than carnal things. They are way more important. They are way more important. But when you don't believe that, you know what's important? Material things. And then you're going to engage in what James says when material things, because the way the economics of this world is set up, it's a dog eat dog system. It's designed to turn you into animals. Now you're fighting and arguing. That's James 4. You have not because you act not. And you receive not because you ask amiss that you might consume it on your lust. War is what's in your heart when you don't have peace. And peace is the foundation of shalom. That is what God gives you necessary for life and godliness. 
When you meet a man or woman that's walking in the peace of God, they are telling you they have sufficient for everything they need. When you meet people that are constantly fighting, it's an evidence of war in their heart. See, you and I are being conditioned to fight. I'm glad I didn't go through every detail in Joshua for you. Because there was war and destruction and all kind of people dying and being killed, heads cut off, held up in the sun. Do y'all understand that? Feet on the neck of kings. Right. All kind of stuff is happening in such a way that you watch that long enough and it debases you. Turns you into animals. Now, all of a sudden, you don't see faces. All of a sudden, now it's just a numbers game. And it's about your team. Am I making some sense? Now, I promise you that God didn't save you to turn you into an animal. But the goal of the devil is to turn us into animals. Politics is the most diabolical, demonic system on this planet. It never has done us good and it never will. May God open us our eyes to that reality.